Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Dark Heights, Episode 8. Bradley Ledler. I can't even say her name without shivering all over. Tess Bellamy. Beautiful Tess. It's almost time. Look in the mirror. Ask the question, are you human? Are you sheep? Are you a werewolf? The mirror above the bathroom sink in this motel room is old, like something a person would find in their grandmother's house. Look at the ornate antique frame in Mother of Pearl. It's paint, the Mother of Pearl. It's fake. With my thumbnail, I can scratch it. flakes right off. That pressure on the nail, driving against the top of the thumb, underneath the paint, Particle board. Garbage. Nothing is made to be genuine anymore. Tess Bellamy. The first time I saw her, she was an actress in a play. I don't know why I went to a play. It's something I never do. Her role was Candy. A heroin-addicted prostitute. I can't remember if she had AIDS. There was a gap. There was an empty space between the words that Tess was speaking and the plot of the play, and who she was as a real person. Candy, the call girl, was bad. She was garbage. She was nothing. I could see very clearly that Tess was so much more. She was good. She was genuine. It couldn't be hidden. In the play, there was a bedroom scene, and she was in her underwear. And it was difficult to stop myself from going up there to cover her up with something. A sheet from the onstage bed, my own shirt. When she didn't speak, it was better. When people speak, it's always wrong. I can't stand it. Stop time. Get up from the seat and climb onto the stage. Put your arms around her. She died in the play at the end. It made me cry. 
I didn't understand why I had cried and I was standing in the lobby. Maybe I was standing there a long time. I had the program in my hand. It was one of those moments when I don't know what I'm going to do next, and I feel afraid. Tess came out from a back room with another actor, a young man, and went through the lobby of the theater right past me. Now there was no wig, no makeup. She looked like herself. In the play, she had worn a blonde wig, and I knew it was a wig, but I couldn't picture what she looked like without it. Seeing her in the lobby, all at once I knew who she was. She was Barbara Bellamy's daughter. I went to her and asked her to sign my program, which was shaking my unsteady hands. Oh, a fan, that's awesome, said the actor who was with her. Tess Bellamy smiled at me and signed the program with the pen I had given her. I wasn't breathing. At first it felt like I was in the presence of Barbara Bellamy when she was very young, when she was the most beautiful actress in Hollywood. But I could see it was more than that. Tess smiled at me. It was like looking inside someone and you saw light in there. You saw fragments of things that were sharp to touch, but that moved because you touched them, becoming brighter and brighter until everything is unbearable. All of my strength not to cry again, not to break down, fall to my knees, push my face into the lobby carpet. Born weak, my grandfather's wife says. Born weak, die empty. That's life without Jesus Christ. The actor who was with Tess said something as they were walking away from me. Um, you know, that guy was really creepy, was what he said, not even trying to lower his voice. Stop it, she said back to him, hitting him on the arm. I considered following them, following him, the actor. He had called me a creep. What would he do when he woke up in his bed and I was right there beside him, sitting in a chair, the blade of the kebar knife flat across my knee, and I would rise up from the chair and move toward him fast before he knew what was happening. Sir, the usher in the theater was talking to me. Sir, we're closing now. I have to get you to leave if that's okay. Oh, Tess. I let her go, even after what had passed between us in that lobby. What happened was this. I was called to duty. My application to the 3% United Patriots had been accepted. I was sure it was going to be since I had served faithfully with the California State Militia for some years. So I shipped out to Imperial County in the south of the state for illegal immigrant border patrol with the 3% Militia. My grandfather pledges allegiance to the flag. We salute. We are in a cemetery to honor the fallen. My grandfather's wife stands behind him and looks down at me. Her hands are pressed into each other so that the knuckles are white. The CO in that militia mission was a bully and a hypocrite. His call sign was Final Patriot. We all called him Captain Final. He took a disliking to me immediately. Hunter, 
he'd say to me. My call sign was Hunter. You do know, my man. We can all tell you'd crap your pants if someone really took a shot at you. Or he'd say, Hunter, what kind of call sign is Hunter? I had taken it from the most important series ever broadcast on TV. City Midnight. That call sign's not anything about your country, I can tell you that much. I don't know what you think about your country, and maybe I don't want to know. I think I had taken enough of his abuse. One night, I had a dream that I was kneeling down over his bedroll in the camp, and I was holding my knife to his throat. And then I was dismissed from 3% the next day. They told me I had been observed by the camp guard that night, standing over Captain Final with my knife while he slept. But I hadn't done it in real life. I had only dreamed it. It can be difficult to tell the difference. I know what really happened. This is the truth. Captain Final is a werewolf. It was clear to me from the beginning. Be careful, werewolves can tell that you know about their existence. My dream was received in their equipment, and they exposed what I was thinking and exploited the fact that I couldn't tell if I had done something or just dreamed that I did it. They forced me out of something I love to do, which is how they make us all feel like killing ourselves. The only way to expose a werewolf inside a human is to stab them and see if they bleed out black water. It's just like in City Midnight, when the hunters force a demon out from the victim's empty body, and they shoot it and stab it, and all the bright light pours out of all of the holes and takes the shape of the monster. A few years ago, this was before it was all shut down by the government, if you found the right chat rooms on the right servers, you quickly understood that City Midnight has taught us everything. When I came back to L.A. after my dismissal from the 3% militia, I admit that I was lost. City Midnight had been re-released on Blu-ray. I watched all three seasons closely, a few times through. Usually re-watching the show gave me some inspiration and renewed my sense of purpose. No, not this time. I found myself driving around the city with my camera, using the telephoto lens to take close-up pictures of girls and young women from far away. It was something I had been doing for a while. I'm not perverted. It's not like that. I was looking for a bride for union. Someone who wasn't sheep and, obviously, who wasn't a werewolf either. That meant she had to be a true human, like myself. True humans can always tell each other apart. I had to look over the photographs I took, look at them closely. Just because a young woman is innocent or pretty, it doesn't mean that they have anything inside of them. You're alone and you always will be, my grandfather's wife says. When you turn away from God, he turns away from you. And then I saw Tess Bellamy again. I couldn't believe it at first, but it was unmistakably her. It was my Tess. I filled the camera with pictures. I was breathless. I was nearly in tears again. 
She was walking in Grand Park with an effeminate man who wore tight jeans and had a pierced ear and a trimmed goatee on his face. One of those men who will be the first to die when we are tested. They were holding hands, so I assumed it was her boyfriend. In how many countless ways could I have removed him? Amazing that I saw her again. I doubted it was real. I did. Then, I understood. This was convergence. In the last season of City Midnight, the demons are gathering in the city and the agents of the Midnight Division don't know why this is happening until they learn that it's called Convergence. But they don't know what that is, and in the last episode of the season they learn that the demons are gathering because Convergence means the end of the world. After that, the show was canceled. Nothing happens by chance. That much is certain. Some people would say that fate is the reason two people meet again. Coincidence, fate. Some of us know that these are signs of convergence. And with convergence imminent, it was time for me to choose my bride for union. Or rather, she had been chosen for me. It was time for me to claim her. I took hundreds of pictures of Tess that day, followed them back to where they lived, she and her boyfriend. Spent many days walking past their apartment building or sitting in the car a block away or a few blocks away. I was never quite able to tell which garbage was theirs in the bins out back of the building. Months passed by. Every day I asked myself if I was ready for convergence, if I was ready to be tested, and every day I felt despair because I needed more time. I'm weak. I know that. God can't see you if you don't pray to him. I used to have to cut myself to make sure I bled red blood, to be able to know who I was. I'm beyond that now. But I look down at my USMC K-bar and I can see so clearly that its black blade slits a sharp line between everything real and all the lies. After some time, I was noticing that Tess came and went by herself. There was no indication that her boyfriend still lived with her. I wanted to be sure. This was my opportunity. I hesitated. How do you know if you're ready? There's no going back from Union. And then, just like her boyfriend before her, one day she was no longer there. I, I don't know how I missed it. I must have been preoccupied with planning, how I would break into her apartment, what I would do once I was there. Tess Bellamy was gone. I had no way of finding her. Yet... I knew her. I knew where she'd grown up. I knew where she'd gone to school. I knew that her mother had been in the hospital. It was always in those gossip magazines. Barbara Bellamy's big breakdowns. So I geared up the same as I would for a militia mission. And I drove to Park Heights. At the Evergreen Motel, the manager looks at my ID and says my name slowly out loud. I can't stand it. My unsteady hands throbbing, the fingers looking for the handle of the black knife. 
Bradley Ledler, he says, overpronouncing. People do that with my name. If I could silence them all. I pay in cash and go to the room. It's dimly lit and the bed sags in the middle where people have slept in extramarital congress. And the room smells like cigarettes even though the manager assured me it was non-smoking. The mirror over the bathroom sink is old. It's like something a person would find at their grandmother's house. I hate this place. Park Heights. There are hippies everywhere, teenagers skateboarding during school hours, two women walking together and holding hands. The diner has only vegetarian food. Where are the fires that we need to cleanse this country? Days have passed. I haven't seen Tess Bellamy anywhere. I admit that I might have been wrong about her coming back home. It's late. I can't sleep. I bought a jumbo smoothie in the godforsaken diner, but it tastes like grass. I'm ready to give up. Oh, Tess. It's you. She's walking up to the door of the diner. How can everything inside me break so easily? She comes into the diner, walks right past my table. She has a friend with her, a slim blonde girl with a sharp face. This girl who's with Tess Bellamy, she looks at me suddenly. I have to look away. There's something terrible about her. She's a werewolf. This blonde girl. She's bad. She's a bad, bad thing. She's the strongest werewolf I've ever seen. Convergence. Tess doesn't know. I have to help her. What would happen if I took her away from the werewolf right here, right now? I can't. There's so many people around us. I can't do it here. It's not the time. What does it mean that the werewolves are around her? Are they waiting for me? Is all of this some kind of trap? I don't know what to do. I have to calm down. I have to leave. I make sure no one follows me as I make my way back to the motel. I go down wrong streets, double back, go too far, turn around. I'm close to certain that no one knows where I am. I paid in cash like I always do for lodging when I travel, so that no one can trace my location. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. When I'm safely in my locked room, I draw the curtains and look out the window from the side. For a long time, there's nothing to see. Then, there is someone. There is a young man on a bike too small for him, coming down the empty street toward the motel. He bikes into the motel parking lot. I am surprised to realize that he wears a wrestling mask drawn over his head. The same kind of mask they have in Mexico for their TV programs that make no sense. What is going on? What is wrong with this place? The young man in the mask goes into the room next to mine. I listen, but there's no sound through the walls. I don't think I'll sleep. I'll wait here by the window in case the werewolves know where I am and choose to attack. In the morning, I see the young man in the mask leave early before sunrise. He bikes his way up the street. What is he doing? Is he wearing that mask to protect his identity from me? Would I see that he's a werewolf? I decide to make sure there isn't surveillance equipment in that room next to mine. I have a set of lockpicks, but the door to the room isn't locked. I go inside. No different than mine, this room. The bedding is taut across the mattress, as if the young man didn't sleep in it. The same as mine. There's something spread out on the floor. It's a drawing or a number of drawings that run across sheets of graph paper taped together. I kneel down to look at it. A map of Park Heights. Drawn by a child. Square houses with triangle roofs. Stick figure people. Crooked streets. It hurts my eyes to look at this map. There's writing on it, descriptions of places, but the letters are backwards and bent, and I blink, but I can't read what they say, and I have to turn my head away and close my eyes because all at once I'm dizzy as if I've been falling into the map itself. Whirls of color spiral through the black behind my squeezed shut eyes. I feel sick. I force myself to look back at the map, and this time... I see that there's a house, surrounded by crudely drawn puffy trees, and it shimmers. I can't be sure, but the letters beneath it shift and blur, and then, suddenly, I can read them. Tess lives here with her mom. A shudder goes through me. That's my Tess Bellamy. I know it. She lives there with her mother, Barbara Bellamy. I leave the room and get into my car and I drive. I feel sick. Turn down the street that was indicated on the map. There's the house, separated from the others on the street by all the trees. 
The front yard looks more like a forest than someone's property. Some sort of ugly metal and marble sculpture juts out from the ground by the driveway. I shake my head sadly. What's the point of art when the world is about to end? Parked in the driveway up by the house, there's an old station wagon. I wait for my Tess. She comes out of the house and gets into the station wagon. I close my eyes. Much later, Barbara Bellamy leaves the house and gets into a taxi. I can't believe it, but she's hardly aged at all. I thought her hair would be gray and her face would be like a mask, but her hair is just as long and black as when she was young. And her face is beautiful. I think I may claim them both for a union. Tess Bellamy first, then her mother. Suddenly my head explodes. I've had a headache ever since I looked at that map. It's getting worse and worse. Now it's so intense I can't see anything. It makes me howl in pain. I pound my hands on the steering wheel over and over again to make it go away. I have to go back to the motel room. I have to close my eyes and sleep. When I dream, it's a dream about the basement. My grandfather's wife speaking to me from the other side of the door. How many animals did you kill? I hear my grandfather farther away, watching football and TV in the living room. Pray, Bradley, pray to God to let you out, she says. My fingernails snap and splinter when I shove my hands into the sliver of space beneath the door where the weakened light from the living room seeps through and touches my face and hands with falling shapes in blue and green. I believe this headache, this pain, I believe it was a psychic attack. I believe convergence is nearing and the werewolves have fixed their eyes on me when I've hidden from them for so long. I am stronger than they think. I recover from the psychic attack, though it takes time. Certain hymns have restorative powers. I lie in the bathtub and submerge myself for as long as my breath holds. Then I sing Onward Christian Soldiers in the voices of my grandfather and my grandfather's wife. I repeat this for 36 hours. That's two sets of three sixes. It has to be soon. Soon I have to claim Tess Bellamy for union. Yet I'm weakened from the psychic attack. I have to wait. And I want to know where her mother is going in the taxi. The taxi cab takes her and me, following in my car, to a place outside of the town or at the edge of the town, at the foot of the hills on which Park Heights was built. The sign out front of a security gatehouse that looks abandoned says, The Wellness Center. Barbara Bellamy gets out of the taxi and goes inside. The expression on her face is like the expression on the face of my grandfather's wife when she went to church every day, when she went to the confessional to talk to the priest. Stay here, Bradley. Pray until I come back. Don't stop. Don't you dare stop praying. I park my car in the lot and I get out. 
this place looks like some kind of hospital. I don't want to go inside, but I do. The receptionist at the front desk is a Muslim woman. She frowns at me, unfriendly. Then, something incredible happens. A man is standing there. He was talking to the receptionist, and he turns to look at me, and I see that it's Devin Hanlon, the actor. Yes, yes, it's Rorick Anderson, the protagonist of City Midnight, standing there. He speaks to me. Are you the tables and chairs guy I'm supposed to be meeting right now? If you are, you're late. I don't know what to say. It's Rorick, my idol, my hero. He's given me everything. Devin Hanlon has a long beard now, but I see in his eyes the same dignified, honorable, tortured soul. It's clear. It's the same as what he portrayed in Rorick Anderson, the cop with a tragic past pulled into the secret midnight division because he could see the demons hidden inside the emptied human bodies. You're not the table and chairs guy? He asks me again. For the gala at Arson? Is any of this making sense? I'm sorry, I say in a tiny voice. There is so much to tell him that I can't start anywhere. I don't know how to speak. I never have. I move away from the front desk. My heart is pounding. All of this convergence with Tess, with Rorick Anderson now here, actually right here in this building where I am, all of this is really happening. How can I be ready for this? A bulletin board on the beige-green cement wall opposite the front desk has community notices pinned over it, overlapped in profusion. I see an advertisement for the Wellness Center Fundraiser Gala at a place called Arson. Tickets are several hundred dollars and all proceeds go to the center. Scheduled for a few nights from now. The event is called Nightfall. When I turn back to the front desk, Devin Hanlon is walking away with another man. Must be the individual he was there to meet. I watch him go down the hallway and take the man into an office. I'll see you again, Rorick Anderson. I leave the wellness center and go back to my car. Convergence. The end of the world. I have to prepare myself. That pain, that something in my head. Blink, the colors spiked like shooting stars. Numbness. There's a girl leaning against the side of my car in the parking lot. I don't know what's happening. She can't be real. The truth, she's a projection sent by the werewolves. She's very young. There are two blue streaks in her black hair. I thought I'd say hello, she says. I don't know what to say to an unreal projection. You look like maybe you're not feeling that well, she says. Please leave me alone. She shrugs. Suit yourself. She removes herself from my car and goes past me. Then she turns back and says, I just wanted to meet you. She laughs. 
I mean, we'll be seeing lots of each other pretty soon. In the circle. I can't let this projection confuse me or deter me or make me slip. I ignore it. I get into the car and I drive. Fast. I have to prepare myself. I ask the Evergreen Motel manager for extra towels. The Wellness Center Fundraiser Gala at Arson, which is the historical mansion situated in the hills above the town of Park Heights. How many people will be there? Hundreds of sheep, watched over by werewolves. Rorick Anderson will be there. If I reveal the werewolves to him, he will have to act. He will have to trigger convergence. The werewolves won't come out unless you open up the empty bodies they hide in. I don't think there will be time for Union. I should put Tess and her mother to sleep. It would be merciful before convergence. Imagine their silence and stillness, lying on the floor of their house and the trickling blood, emptied. But I can't risk being discovered before the gala at Arson. There are patterns I need to cut into my arms to protect me from the powers of the werewolves. I should have done this already. If I'd done it, I wouldn't be subject to these psychic attacks and projections. Just as I thought. The pain of cutting into my skin seems to shield me from the pain in my head. Everything is accelerating. When I handle the knife, I remember when my grandfather gave it to me, the USMC K-bar that he carried in Korea in 1951. It has power, he said. You have to respect its power. And my grandfather's wife watching as she wiped the milk glasses dry with a clean dish towel checkered red and white. The red square is more numerous than the white, two to one. How I love that knife. I cared for it, oiled it, made it clean, kept it sharp. My grandfather wouldn't say it, but I know he killed NKPA soldiers with it in the Battle of Imjin River. He didn't need to say anything. It was there in the way he looked at its edge. My grandfather's wife pushes me down. Repent your filth, repent your sins. Everything comes together. Time stops. My grandfather's wife takes my glasses from my face and throws them to the ground. Sin is what blinds you. Sin fills your empty heart. When I kneel down to pick up my glasses, I see that one of the lenses is cracked. I drive to Arson on the night of the event. Nightfall. There are security guards at the gatehouse, and a high-wrought iron perimeter fence protects the property. Drive past without slowing down. Take the car to the dead end of the road. Out of the car, quick to the fence. Only decorative. Dig with a spade beneath and dislodge two rods, and I'm right through. Into the woods, knife in my hand. Later, when I make my move, I believe I will be able to use it on four or five werewolves before others stop me, before the security guards reach me. I wonder if that blonde girl, the werewolf who is with Tess, will be here tonight. Rorick Anderson will see me. I can do this. I can. I shouldn't be afraid. Where have you been, Bradley? Have you been out in the woods? 
God help me, someone's coming. Through the trees. Is this real? Knife in hand. God, it's Tess. Tess is coming to me. I don't know what's real anymore. Yes, it's her. It's her. It's her. After everything, here she is. She's here. Delivered unto me. Perfection of convergence. My grandfather's wife. The neighbor's cat was killed, skinned whole. The pieces were in their mailbox. I can claim Tess for union like I always wanted to, and I'll have the strength she'll give me the strength to do this. All those missing cats and dogs in the town, Bradley. Tess's dress is too small, too tight. It has to come off. How many animals have you killed? Did you bury them out in those woods? She doesn't see me. She looks tired. She looks upset. I can't imagine what she's gone through at Arson. A true human surrounded by werewolves. I step forward. I hear my voice. Do you need some help? My voice is steady. She stops. She sees me. Her eyes are afraid. Her makeup is streaked from crying. Oh, beautiful Tess, don't say a word. You're unhappy and I'll free you from it. Tonight we're all free. All of us. For all time. It looks like you really need me right now. My voice is calm and quiet. But inside, there's a thousand sharp fragments of joy that cut open my mind so that all the light that was trapped spills out at last into every dark part of the world. You're listening to Dark Heights by C.D. Miller, starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Realm. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. It is produced by Haley Wagreich and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller.